You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Jesus came telling us stories, and we're studying those stories in a series called Turning Points. We're looking at the transformation into which Jesus Christ calls all of his followers. And when we think about what transformation is, I think we'd say that it's when what is true about us becomes true within us. When When the good news that is spoken about us becomes the good news inside of us, in our experience, in our lifestyle. When God's declaration of His great love for us becomes our reality and experience of sharing in that love. That would be transformation, it seems to me. Well, how does that happen? Let's look this morning at a story that Jesus tells. It gives us a window into it. It's in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. I would invite you to pull out your Bible or the Pew Bible on the rack in front of you there. The Pew Bible, open up to page 844. And let's stand together and read God's word aloud. This is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word lasts forever. Please be seated. So a lawyer comes to Jesus and asks him a question. And if I read this text right, 
When Jesus asks the lawyer his own question, the lawyer blinches. He blinches. Now, I don't really know what the word blinch actually means. I think it must be a combination of of blush and flinch. I'm not sure about that. I looked it up in a dictionary and did not find it. Um, But where you do find it is in the House of Pooh Corner. The House of Pooh Corner tells us of a day when uh, little piglet um, is imposed on by Pooh into a feat of daring. You, you see, Owl's house has blown over and the animals are stuck inside. And, and Pooh says, the piglet, you're just the right size that if we could hoist you up uh, to the top on a thread, you could escape and find help. And of course, this terrifies uh, Piglet, and he's very much disinclined to collaborate with this plan. But uh, Pooh says, well, if you do, I will write for you a celebratory hum. (laughs) And so Piglet says, I'll do it. In fear and trembling, he is hoisted up, and they escape. Now, uh, Pooh delays in the composition of this hum. Days pass, and weeks, and... Because as it turns out, Pooh rightly says, any of you who are writers will know that a poem or a hum is not something you go out and get. It's something that has to come and get you. And the other reason it's hard for Pooh to get to this composition is that um, if the truth of the endeavor be known, uh, Piglet's bravery was rather lacking in the whole thing. And so to write a sort of a a hymn of praise to Piglet becomes sort of a challenge that takes some time. And I don't have time to read to you the whole hum, seven verses, but I do want to read to you the reaction that Piglet has to this. Piglet, said Pooh a little shyly after they'd walked for some time without saying anything. Yes, Pooh? Do you remember when I said that a respectful Pooh song might be written about you-know-what. Did you, Pooh? said Piglet, getting a little pink around the nose. Oh, yes, I believe you did. It's been written, Piglet. The pink went slowly up Piglet's nose to his ears and settled there. Has it, Pooh? he asked huskily. About, about the time when... Do you mean really written? Yes, Piglet. So... Pooh hummed it to him, all the seven verses. And Piglet said nothing, but just stood and glowed. For never before had anyone sung ho for Piglet, ho, all by himself. When it was over, he wanted to ask for one of the verses over again, but didn't quite like to. It was the verse beginning, O gallant Piglet. (laughs) And it seemed to him a very thoughtful way to begin a piece of poetry. Did I really do all that, he said at last. Well, said Pooh, in poetry, in a piece of poetry, well, you did it, Piglet, because the poetry says you did, and that's how people know. Oh, said Piglet, because I I thought I did blinch a little, just at first. And it says, did he blinch? No, no. That's why. You only blinched inside, said Pooh. And that's the very bravest way for a very small animal not to blinch that there is. Piglet sighed with happiness and began to think about himself. 
he was brave. See, despite all the blinching and all the internal evidence to the contrary, inside of Piglet, Pooh has described for him a new reality. Oh, gallant Pooh. Well, I say to you this morning that I think uh, the lawyer uh, blinches. And I want to look with you at uh, the lawyer's questions that he brings to Jesus and, and about the story, secondly, that Jesus tells. And then finally, what is it that takes the truth about us and makes it become the truth within us? And you're going to see that the truth that Pooh speaks about Piglet becomes very much the truth and the experience of Piglet. What is it that makes that happen for Piglet as well as for us? And we'll look at that question as well. But first of all, the questions that this lawyer brings to Jesus. And I love that this text is in the scripture because do we not all bring questions to Jesus? And here he entertains them quite graciously. This lawyer, we're told, came to test Jesus. And that sounds a bit nasty at first until we realize that the Queen of Sheba had one day come to test Solomon. And really all that that meant was she wanted to find out if the things that were said about Solomon were really true. And here comes a, an inquisitive man, a, a lawyer, to, to, to find out if the things that he has heard about Jesus are really true. And he's got some questions and Jesus draws them out in conversation. Jesus, as he does so, will, will make three observations. I mean, he must have. There are three things that Jesus couldn't help but notice in his conversation partner, in his two questions that he asks. And I want to share them with you because who knows, perhaps they're questions uh, with which you could identify these observations. The first one is this, that the lawyer doesn't see that what he really yearns for in life is here now. It's not above it's not beyond. It's here right now. And notice the first question that the lawyer asks. Uh, verse 25. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we find that question is a common question. In fact, it's, it's in Luke. A little bit later on, the rich young ruler comes and asks Jesus exactly the same question. And if we look at the teaching of later uh, rabbis, we find out in early uh, first century and later Judaism, this question came to mean, when will God do what God had promised to do through the prophets and make life the way it's supposed to be? When will we be able to step into that moment, the resurrection of the righteous, the fulfillment of the messianic expectations, the, the, the arrival of shalom on earth, and, and, the, and the lawyer wants to know, how can I participate in that reality to be sure that I've, I've got in my hand what I will need when that day comes? But he hasn't been listening. When the rich young ruler asks this very same question, Jesus equates that question with the message he's been preaching all along, which is the kingdom of God is at hand. Because he says, remember, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel. So for him, these two realities are the same. Jesus has been speaking all along about that experience of, of God bringing to earth life the way it is supposed to be. 
And Jesus has said, it's here. It's not later. It's not above. It's here. We can step into it through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first observation that Jesus is able to make about this man. He doesn't notice that it's here. Blinch. The second observation he makes about this man uh, is to be seen in uh, verse 29. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And the observation is this. It's simply that the lawyer doesn't feel like he's a very good people lover, neighbor lover. You know, he feels he's got a little exposure on this. right? Because when he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't actually answer the question, does he? He turns it back. He goes, well, you're a lawyer. Now, pause. A lawyer is not somebody that uh, is not a profession like we experience today working in a courtroom. A lawyer is somebody who uh, studied the scriptures. It's the word lawyer in the New Testament is interchangeable with the word scribe. These are people who copied sacred texts, knew them very well, sometimes did mediate disputes. But Jesus says to him, well, if this is your question, what's your answer? And the lawyer digs back into his memory verses and he takes Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, and Leviticus 19, and he combines them together and he has this, he says, well, you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. But he gets thinking to himself about his neighbors. And he begins to wonder, if Jesus were actually to poll my neighbors and ask them how I'm doing... I might have a little liability. I might have a little exposure on that one. Love God, yes, but love neighbor, not so sure. And he seeks to justify himself with a follow-up question. And Jesus begins to notice his anxiety. Have I loved my neighbor? Blinch. Third observation that Jesus is going to make about this man is that he thinks the secret of life is do. I mean, after all, that's, you get you get a question to ask Jesus, you know, you got an opportunity, you think, how am I going to frame this? I'm not sure how many follow-ups I'm going to get. And his question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, <clears throat> Luke knows we've been reading his gospel already. And he knows that as the reader, we already know how we begin a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Luke 7, he says to the sinful woman in the city, I tell you, your sins are forgiven. I've canceled a great debt. It's about grace. It's not about doing. We talked about the, the Christianity at its heart is not good advice. It's not something uh, that's recommended to do at all. It's good news. It's a proclamation of what God has done for us. It's what is done. And, and, and we'll see this later on. Remember, Luke writes the Gospel, and he also writes uh, the book of Acts. And at Pentecost, uh, the Spirit will come, and people will say, What is this thing? Then how do we be saved? And, and, and Peter will say, Well, you just you, you, you believe in Jesus. You turn. You baptize into his community. It's a, it's a gift that you receive. And Jesus doesn't have a lot of advice for someone who's wanting to know, What do I do? To get the best in life. This is not a, a do uh, story. And the problem is that this 
Boyer has a deep sense within him. His own heart, I would say, condemns him when he thinks about his capacity to do. When he takes the the answer that he himself gives Jesus, love God and love neighbor, and he measures his own performance against it, and he begins to feel really nervous. All my life I've had good theology. This is a good answer, by the way. It's the same answer that Jesus will give the rich young ruler, Love God and love your neighbor. When he's asked what is the greatest commandment, he'll say the same thing. It's good theology. The lawyer knows he's never been able to adequately express that good theology through his actions, through his life. It's never really been his living reality. It's just been his creed. Because his life's been about do, 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 must do. And now Jesus, with his story, as we move on, will point out that he hasn't asked the right question at all. And Jesus doesn't have many answers for due questions. Jesus wants to ask his own question of the lawyer, and it's a become question, not a do question. For 2,000 years, we've been trying to make a religion out of Jesus, and he just will not participate. He just will not answer those questions. And so he says, let me tell you a story. Now, Friends, to understand this story, I want to propose that you have to forget almost everything you've been taught about it. At least I do. This is one of, probably the best known of Jesus' stories, the Good Samaritan, and the least understood. You and I have a version in our heads of how this story goes. We've been taught it. We just assumed it. And friends, you know what? It's not Jesus' version. It's the lawyer's version. <clears throat> it's the do version. The lawyer has an expectation about the way this story is supposed to go, if Jesus were to tell it right. By the way, every story has two versions. That's what suspense is. It's the tension between uh, what we expect to happen and what really happens. So get ready for the tension of this story. It's surprising. It's going to expect. It's not what you plan on hearing from Jesus. What's the lawyer's version of the story? What's the do version? Well, it would go something like this. Jesus would say that. He would say, okay, once upon a time, there was a lawyer who was going on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's an actual road. And as the lawyer goes, he comes across an injured person. He's been beaten up, and there he is. And the lawyer says to himself, hmm, this man is an Israelite like I am. He's one of us. I think I'll help him out. And so he does. And then the lawyer continues on his journey, and he comes across another man who's been beaten up, and there he lay in the dust. The lawyer looks at him and he says, this man's not an Israelite, but he's an alien residing in our midst. The rabbis would would debate about this. Who's a neighbor? Well, he's, he's not really one of us, but he is a neighbor. And after all, I remember that I once was an alien and a stranger, and God had mercy on me. So I will have mercy on him. I'll help him out. And so he does. And then he continues on his journey. And at last he comes across, oh my goodness, an injured Samaritan. And there he sits, half dead. And the lawyer says to himself, well, he's not one of us. And he's not like one of us. But for some reason, it just seems like the right thing to do. I'm going to help him out. And so he does. Does that not sound like the story we've been told the Good Samaritan's all about? It's about you love not people that are like you, not only people that are near you, but people who are very different from you. That's the whole point of the story. You've got to love everybody. You've got to keep doing love until the day you die. 
That's the story that we've been told. That's the story that the lawyer expects. But it is not the story that Jesus tells. Jesus doesn't tell us a do story. He tells us a become story. Here's how it goes. There's not one traveler passing three different persons about whom he has to analyze, is this my neighbor? No, it's three persons who pass one victim, one person with need. Three different persons. And who are they who pass by? Well, the first guy is a priest. The second guy is a Levite. These are religious functionaries. You know, these are pastors. You know, this is the clergy. These are the religious elites. They, they will certainly do the right thing, will they not? These are like the BSF leaders. Let me pick on um, people other than myself. These are like the volunteers, you know, at CFM, Children of they, these, they know the right answers and they're doing the right stuff. They're on their way to holy business, we think. You know, and <clears throat> but they walk by untouched by the experience of a burden across their path. They just go around. No transformation. And yet the third person, the third person, we see something dramatic happens. Look at verse 36. Here's the clincher. Jesus, after telling the story, asks the lawyer, can he see it himself with his own eyes? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. Now, look, I gotta, you know, I'm always complaining about the translation. We have good translations, by the way, but, and was is a legitimate translation, but the word there is actually the word for become. It can mean was, but, and, and Eugene Peterson in the message translates it this way. Luke 7.36, what do you think? Which of these three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? See, he's saying, which one was transformed? Which one encountered a turning point in his life? <clears throat> and what is the answer? It's not the religious prose. It's a Samaritan. Now, what do we know about Samaritans? We know two things that are relevant to this story. One is they were lousy with respect to the law. Even today, scholars have what we call the Samaritan Pentateuch. They had their own Bible, thank you very much. It only had five books, the first five books of Moses. There was nothing else, and they had their own way of interpreting it. So a lawyer is driven to distraction by the idea that that a Samaritan could do the righteous thing. The other thing that we know about Samaritans is that they were crummy neighbors. You, you see, in the 8th century B.C., when the Assyrians came and ransacked Jerusalem and carried away Israelites, they had this way of maintaining control over their empire. They repatriated a bunch of Mesopotamians into the area of Samaria. And how did the people of Samaria respond? They intermarried. So the Samaritans are half-breeds. And then, after the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century B.C., the days of Nehemiah, when they come back to rebuild the wall and the temple, <clears throat> Sanballat and all these people who are harassing the Israelites, who are trying to reconstruct God's kingdom there, the, Samaria, the Samarians, they side with the enemies of Israel. They take sides with the opponents. These guys are not good neighbors. They don't know the first. So you see Jesus' message. He says, I can take a spiritual freak who knows nothing about the Bible, nothing about neighbors, and I can make him a neighbor. I can turn him into a person with whom uh, God has great pleasure, and more than that, I can turn him into a person who has great pleasure in who God is. It's a become story. And you say, well, how does it happen? I mean, is this something I could be like going through a metropolitan market with my grocery cart and all of a sudden, boosh, I become someone different? 
we might wish, metropolitan market might wish, but that's not the story that Jesus tells. There's a precipitating moment here in verse 33. Uh, verse 33, we read that just like the other two guys, the Samaritan sees this man who has a need, but he responds differently. He is moved with pity, the text tells us. In Greek, that's one word. One word that describes the innards of a human being or of an animal. It's the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, the spleen, the most valuable and, frankly, the tastiest parts. Because in ancient and classical Greece, when they would offer a sacrifice, not of humans, but of, of an animal, they would take that, those parts, cook them and eat them first because they were the best parts. So much so that it became a term, this word for pity, uh, that was associated with the meal itself, a sacrificial meal. By the time that the word is used in the New Testament era, it's interesting to note that this word, had compassion, is never used of anyone other than God and Jesus Christ in the whole of the New Testament, uh, other than people in parables. So that one commentator says you could really translate it, uh, messianic compassion. And you go, where does this come from? It doesn't come from inside people like me, people like Samaritans. This is love that comes from outside. This is compassion that breaks in. It's intrusive. It's an in-breaking expression of that coming kingdom. The way things are supposed to be, it's not visible to everybody yet, but it's breaking in quietly, silently, efficiently into the lives of people, transforming them in Jesus Christ. Luke has just used this word when he has described three chapters earlier in Luke chapter 7, Jesus' response to the widow of Nain. Jesus is just walking along a path, and there's a funeral procession coming out. And he sees the widow is the mother. Her only son is deceased. The text tells us Jesus is so moved by compassion, his heart uh, um, responds convulsively, another way to translate this word for compassion, that he cannot pass by and he must act. And what he does, I think, reflexively, probably not even thinking it through, is he says, wake up. And he resurrects this man right in the middle of his own funeral procession. And it says everybody was terrified. This is something really strange. It's an in-breaking and so what, what brings the transformation into his life is the moment when this Samaritan sees and intends to take upon himself the burden of another and make it his own. It's at that moment that there's a time-space continuum rift and he makes contact with the compassion of God. It makes contact with him. So that's the point of the story. Uh, and that's the answer to our question. How does what is true of us become what is in us? The answer, when we bear the burden of another. And you go, now, wait a minute, I'm starting to get a little uncomfortable with that. Are you saying that anytime anyone in the world helps someone out, they're being transformed by the kingdom of God? Everybody helps someone out at some point. No, I'm not saying that. Jesus isn't either. It's, it's not a sufficient condition for transformation, but helping someone else with their burden is a necessary condition for transformation. 
In other words, you have to first know who you are for that to become reality in your life. You have to first hear the good news. We don't know what the Samaritan has heard. It's actually a made-up character. Uh, Jesus is not concerned to tell us. But we do know that Samaritans flocked to the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Gospels are filled with their association with him. They were transformed by him. In Luke chapter 17, we'll see a story of ten, uh, not a story, but a reality, ten lepers who are healed. Only one will come back, and Luke tells us it was a Samaritan. came back to say thanks and give praise to God. So I kind of believe Jesus is implying that this Samaritan knows who he is, but what has to happen is he has to see someone who is in need and respond in compassion to that need to experience the transforming love of God resonating with his own. We're not transformed just by bearing burdens, but we're not transformed just by believing good doctrine either. No, we must become in time and space, we've got to put our hands on the love of God. That's why John, the apostle, says in 1 John 4, 11 and 12, Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. Listen to this. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. We love one another. One another. That's the church, friends. That's the community of Jesus' followers. It's who we are. And these days, a lot of disparaging comments about community and the church. Um, we live rather anemically in terms of community. We live very individualistically. Writing about this in Christian Century, Gregory Boyd says this. He writes about community. If you are looking for an explanation as to why studies confirm that there's hardly any difference in Western countries between church goers and non-church goers in terms of their core values, I've suggested you just found it. Another writer uh, wrote a book recently. It's been very popular, and I'm not going to name the writer or the book, but when it was reviewed in Christianity Today, the reviewer said this. says, this writer expects to see believers, and here he's quoting from the book, choosing from a proliferation of options, weaving together a set of favorite alternatives into a unique tapestry that constitutes the personal church of the individual. And the reviewer says, the phrase, the personal church of the individual, must be the most mind-spinning phrase ever written about the church of Jesus Christ. Could it be that we evangelical Protestants who have done more to fragment Christendom than any other group are now taking that to the logical extreme, a church at the individual level, each person creating a personal church experience? At any other point in church history, personal church would be nonsensical. In today's America, it's the next big thing. We are a brotherhood, a sisterhood, and a brother is not a brother until he is first a burden to us. And in that moment, we experience the reality of our community in Jesus Christ. The lawyer thought he could walk by a person in need and still worship God. The, the priest thought the same. The Levite thought the same. But Jesus says, when you stop and help, you will be transformed by the God who is a burden-bearing God. So God says to you today, I know you feel like you don't always love the way you want to. But I know what is true about you, that I have come in my son to become like you so that you can become like me. And you now in that son are a part of the eternal communion of father, son and Holy Spirit, receiving and giving love with a joyful heart. 
That's what's true about you. But today and this week, I'm going to lay across your path somebody who needs what you have to share in order that you may have an experience of my compassion. So in closing, I want you to see that it was that same thing, somebody in need, that allowed Piglet also uh, to become a neighbor. And I close with this. We begin here now with Eeyore, who has just learned that Owl's house is blown over and uh, destroyed in a wind, and then he needs another one. And he says, nobody tells me, said Eeyore. Nobody keeps me informed. I make it 17 days come Friday since anybody spoke to me. Rabbit says, it certainly isn't 17 days come Friday, explained Eeyore. And today's Saturday, said Rabbit, so that would make it 11 days. And I was here myself a week ago. Not conversing, said Eeyore. Not first one and then the other. You said hello and flashed past. I saw your tail a hundred yards up the hill as I was meditating my reply. I had thought of saying, what? But of course, it was then too late. Well, I was in a hurry. No give and take, Eeyore went on. No exchange of thought. Hello, what? I mean, it just gets you nowhere, particularly if the other person's tail is only just in sight for the second half of the conversation. <laughs> so Eeyore ventures out to discover some other parts of the Hundred Acre Wood. He's never been out of his own corner, and he thinks this opportunity to help find Owl a home perhaps is his chance to become a neighbor in the wood. The problem is he's never seen anybody else's house, and the awkward moment comes when he finds Piglet's house and thinks it's just the place to give Owl. Well, as the animals follow Eeyore and parade behind him to see what house he has found, the writing continues. So in a little while, they came to the house which Eeyore had found. And just before they came to it, Piglet was nudging Pooh, and Pooh was nudging Piglet, and they were saying, it is, and it can't be, and it's really to each other. There, said Eeyore proudly, stopping them outside Piglet's house. And the name on it and everything. They can't read. <laughs> oh, cried Christopher Robin, wondering whether to laugh or what. Just the house for Owl. Don't you think so, little Piglet? And then Piglet did a noble thing. And he did it in a sort of a dream. While he was thinking about all the wonderful words Pooh had hummed about him. Yes, it's just the house for Owl, he said grandly. And I hope he'll be very happy in it. And then he gulped twice, because he had been very happy in it himself. What do you think, Christopher Robin, asked Eeyore a little anxiously, feeling that something wasn't quite right. Christopher Robin had a question to ask first, and he was wondering how to ask it. Well, he said at last, it's a very nice house. 
And if your own house is blown down, you must go somewhere else, mustn't you, piglet? What would you do if your house was blown down? Before Piglet could think, Pooh answered for him. He'd come and live with me, said Pooh. Wouldn't you, Piglet? Piglet squeezed his paw. Thank you, Pooh, he said. I should love to. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is absolutely your intention, we now understand, to move your neighborhood into ours. To come and give us not only teaching about love, but to break love into our hearts. We pray this day that you will give us the eyes to see the burdens that one of each of us carries. That we might have the grace to share those burdens with others and to take them from one another. And so make us a community that is changed by your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.